This week on the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast, we bring in NetApp IT and the storage services design guys to talk a bit more about data protection. How much data can you afford to lose? Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi and sitting in his car is... Glenn Sizemore. <laughs> yes, he is. He is in his car. He's driving in the rain very safely. Hopefully you're hands-free there, Glenn. Uh, always hands-free. I'm doing what I like to call my best Gabriel Chapman impersonation. That is a pretty good Gabriel Chapman impersonation. I have this vision of Glenn with like a microphone arm like attached to his steering wheel and... Like with a big fuzzy mic head on it? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> also in the studio, of course, uh, Andrew Sullivan. Always happy to be here. And, uh, you know, last time we recorded, apparently I was banging around a lot. So I'm, uh, did, it, did you see that movie, uh, Puss in Boots, right? You remember Kitty Softballs? Yes. Know, that's, yeah, I'm channeling my inner, inner softball. We need to today. get you some kitten mittens, like on. Yeah, uh, apparently. <laughs> like on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> All right. Uh, this week we have in the studio, once again, the NetApp IT guys as well as the storage services design team. Um, a while back we talked about uh, data protection with the storage services design team. Uh, it was episode 19. And a question came up about data governance. And we were kind of stumped as to what that, you know, how, how all that worked and what sort of terminology we were going to use. So, um, being the uh, superb podcasters we are, we, we went to get you the actual guy who knows things, and uh, that would be Ken Sacco. So, Ken Sacco, say hello and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hello, everyone. My name is Ken Sacco. I'm the enterprise architect at NetApp that focuses on really risk management, whether that is uh, business continuity, disaster recovery, or actually even security. All right, Ken Sacco. No stranger to the podcast, Stetson Webster. Tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, what you are here for today. Sure. Um, I'm Stetson Webster. I'm an architect in NetApp IT, and I'm bringing in the rest of the team to talk about how we do data protection. All right. On the, on the phone uh, as well on Skype is Evan Miller. Evan Miller, tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, what, you know, what sort of things you're going to talk about today. Hello. I'm Evan Miller. I lead the service design team for NetApp. And I'm also an executive architect that delivers service design workshops around the Americas for our customers. Also in the studio today, we have Eduardo Rivera. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you do here at NetApp, Eduardo Rivera. <laughs> so, I've been here before, but I, what I do is I'm a storage architect within our customer one organization, which is really our NetApp IT inf uh, infrastructure management you know, organization. So, I... In that capacity, I match all the storage infrastructure that holds up our IT, you know, IT applications and whatnot. All right. So I, I mentioned earlier that we had a data protection episode, episode 19, of course. You can find that at techontappodcast.com. You can also find several other uh, podcast episodes we've done with the storage service design team and NetApp IT. Um, so in that data protection episode, we brought up the notion of OPO, which they call Operational Point Objective. And there were some questions about that, and mostly was about you know what it is, uh, how it's implemented, and to to really cover that in detail, we brought the guy who pretty much created it, 
uh, Ken Sacco. So, Ken, if you could go over a brief overview of what that sort of thing means, what that terminology means, and what why would you why you would use it in a data protection scenario? Sure. So, if you think, really think about it, look at disaster recovery. Everybody's familiarizing, uh, familiar with recovery point objectives and recovery time objectives. So that's nothing new. Um, and when we decided to standardize and classify certain tiers that would get these things by default, we also started looking at the operational side of things, saying, well, wait a minute, why are we doing customized activities per application for production, but then standardizing what they need to do from a disaster recovery point of view? So we simply said, let's use the same objectives. If you've got a recovery time objective, you have an operational point objective. In other words, how long can production be down before you can resume production activities? Same thing with operational point objective. How much data are we willing to lose per incident? And that directly is supported by backup and restore. So OPO now drives the requirements for data protection. So how did you come about with that sort of methodology in terms of operational point objective? And what was the, what was the line of thinking towards that? And how did you come to, to kind of create that whole methodology? Well, again, it was leveraging uh, disaster recovery first. Um, I also come from a, I've been doing backup myself for over 20-something years. And I've always dealt with the fact that there tends to be inconsistency between um, applications and, you know, uh, how many different backup um, duration times I have. But what made it even more so for us specifically was that we were moving away from just looking at applications but the IT services. Now, an IT service is an ecosystem of, of applications. And if I don't have every application within that ecosystem having the same point objectives, then I'm not going to recover consistently. So that was one of the drives to say, we need consistency across multiple applications that make up a service. And for me to do that, I had to come up with the standards. And I leveraged, again, DR's already established RTO and RPO methods. So Eduardo, Right. As Ken was going through and creating these different, well, effectively, service levels for the OPO objectives, um, and yes, I realize that's redundant, uh, you know, what type of things are we using in order to actually implement this, right? It, I, I assume, so first, that it's surfaced up through the storage as a service catalog. It's right a part of the standard service offering where you can choose to, and, and I may be grossly underestimating the complexity here, but effectively group applications together so, so that they represent a single service. Um, and then have equivalent, right, or, or work with the underlying backup and recovery infrastructure to deliver that. It's complicated because you have several groups involved that have to agree upon this, right? And I think that's where Ken comes in with uh, his methodology. So, so before we can talk about the technology on the storage side, it, basically you have to classify all these applications based on the criticality. And to your point... Multiple applications may make up a single service. So, and then if you ask individual applications uh, what their data protection you know, requirements are, they may be different, and therefore you need now to draw some commonality across across them to provide the data protection for that particular service. The reason this is important is from a storage technology point of view. This all these applications come down to a, a you know a number of volumes or lots or whatnot, and, and to implement data protection, I need to do. Snapshot policies, snap mirror policies, snap vault policies, and they all have to agree. So when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, what we do, we try to adopt, again, once we have the classification of the applications and we can de de deconstruct, or the services, sorry, and deconstruct those into the applications and volumes and make that up, from a storage point of view, we apply, you know, standard, I'll say a standard uh, 
service levels for, you know, this is what this default snapshot policy is going to look like. This is the retention for those local snapshots. This is what the policy is going to look like for replication to a secondary system. Is that going to be local or remote? Uh, and then SAP Vault and, and ultimately things like don't them archival through something like that, Auto Vault or something like that. So, so that's how it, you know, that's sort of how the cookie crumbles from, from the top down. So can you can you walk us through one of these, right? How how is that service level determined, right? How is the OPO level determined? And then on the back end, how is that actually implemented or enforced? Sure, I'll I'll talk about how we establish the requirement. So as uh, Eduardo mentioned, the classification was really a top down. Instead of the application or IT establishing what the requirements are, we went back up we went up the stack to the business itself. What is the purpose? What is the business capability that's actually going to be using those applications? So, for example, say case management, right? We started looking at it and said, all right, case management, what is the value of your activity? We looked at it because I'm a DR person at heart. I'm looking at what is the impact of not doing it? You know, how will a company be impacted? And we start looking at it from business terms, you know, financially, uh, customer satisfaction, regulatory and compliance, um, operations to NetApp, you know, looking at these business impact areas. And we came up with a simple approach of establishing thresholds. And that's actually where the tiers started coming in. Because we said, all right, if, for example, you're, you can't um, generate this much amount of revenue, and if that amount is not generated, it could be listed as a catastrophic event to NetApp, that's considered our top tier. And obviously, if it has no financial impact, it's a bottom tier. So all we simply did is say, all right, for every business capability that NetApp is doing, we're going to run that capability against five different impact areas, each with three to five thresholds. And all they do is select where they fall into that. I look at what is the worst impact that gives them their tier. From that capability, now I know what their requirements are because part of that is uh, how much data am I willing to lose? Look at transaction-based systems, right? If, I, if this revenue, I, can, I don't want to lose too many transactions. So I look at the revenue loss, again, of that not being able to do those transactions and start, starts getting into the time objectives. So once we had the tiers established, the five different tiers, we then set the standard requirements. Now, from a DR point of view, the business is always given IT their recovery time objective and their recovery point objective. Just for the most part, though, IT ignored them because they, they were ridiculous. You know, uh, and that was no different than any place I've ever been to. Uh, I mean, I've seen situations where somebody did a sort of an analysis, came back and say, I am critical. But you know what? I could be down for 72 hours. But, but I want infinite retention. I want like a, yeah. every second backup. Exactly. And then you had the other person that says, hey, I'm just operational, but I need to be up in two minutes and no data loss. Right. So it, there was no consistency there. So we, again, looked at it saying, all right, if I lose the service and its data, how impactful would it be? We married those two together per tier. So that's basically how we got from the business side to understanding what we need to do for, say, data protection for the operational point. That was inherited from an IT speak as the IT service. So that's where we come up with the IT services, right? So an IT service is identical. It's just a, an IT view of a business capability. So again, if I did case management as a business capability, assess its tiers, got its continuity requirements, the IT service 
inherited those continuity requirements and from an IT point of view said these are the things, these are the applications that need to support this exact amount of objectives. So all applications that would be associated with that tier would inherit the exact same point objectives. So how, how granular are these uh, services? Are we talking about things like DNS, right? DNS is, is a fairly critical s service for most operations, right? If it goes down, is that factored into now it's affecting all of these other services, which means it's a more critical service? Yeah, actually, uh, we came up with a new category because originally most businesses would look at things from business critical down to business administration. And that's for us four different levels. We have a fifth one. We added it called Enterprise Critical, and that is the T0, and that's exactly the geared for what you brought up, where we looked at uh, a business capability, or technically a service, that if it went down, would impact multiple services, multiple T1 services. So really, T0 for us is infrastructure. So things like DNS. Um, another example would be NetApp.com. Now, I'm not saying that everything underneath NetApp.com has to be up and running. But the last thing you want from, say, a reputational point of view is have netit.com listed as being down. So things like that is what we gear tier zero, which is meant to be always on, always available, which requires geographically distributed production and no data loss, sync, right? So we do actually uh, have that category for that level of service. Very cool. And I mean, just to be clear, this extends well beyond just providing resilient storage services, right? This is at every tier of the infrastructure, at every corner of the data center, right? Taking into account things like, well, even data center architecture, right? You can't rely on a data center that has unreliable power or cooling that isn't going to be able to keep the machines up and operational. So it's not just a storage thing in this instance, although we happen to be here to talk to Eduardo and Stetson about storage. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's everything. Um, we have assessment processes that quickly go through and see where are the risks of that entity supporting those requirements. I mean, we, it's fairly simple when you're just talking about here's four tiers of service with these objectives, and all I'm doing is assessing your ability to actually support it across the entire stack. Uh, just to mention it also, I know this is a storage discussion, but we're doing that even from a security point of view. Same sort of thing. I'm assessing the information associated with an application, looking at its impact if it was exposed to the company from a business point of view. It's on a tier, and I make sure that wherever it's residing now, the data and its compute is within an accredited environment that supports those uh, security requirements. Obviously, when you're starting it like we did, you know, uh, initiated this three years ago, but we've been making some really strides over the last year. It's a long journey when you're talking about re-looking at everything. You know, so uh, one other piece is the fact that this is also not just an IT piece. If I have the fact that I could lose data or I could lose the uh, compute, where's the business in this? Are they relying only on IT? You know, can I also look at a business alternate process? So, in other words, I'm bringing everybody into the mix that has a, an activity to go on. Are you doing the best you can to keep our business running in the way we say it needs to be running? So, so you brought up an interesting question to me, right? You, you mentioned that we just started this process three years ago and have really been making a lot of progress recently. I, I would think the last year or so is what you kind of brought up. So... 
obviously this is something that we are bringing applications, bringing services into as we go along, right? It's not a greenfield deployment. Everybody isn't starting anew. So knowing that there's a lot of customers out there who have not tens or, or hundreds of applications, but thousands of applications, right? is there a, a strategy, is there a methodology that makes it easier to incorporate this sort of methodology, this, this mindset into their applications as they do that, that I hate to say brownfield, but as they, they bring existing applications in? Yeah, well, again, that's one of the reasons why we're doing it from the service point of view, because now I can treat all the applications that are associated with a single service as a unit. So, I, you know, I'm not just going to each individual application. I'm going to a bunch of them. And the ratio of applications to IT services, I, I, I want to, I'm just guessing here, but I think it's probably 10 to 1 or even higher. So it's not like I'm addressing too many individual things um, in parallel or sequentially. I, I'm, I'm doing it at the IT service level, and that makes it more manageable. Now, here's the also thing. Because this does take time, you have to prioritize. Well, what do you prioritize? You prioritize on the services that are at the top tier. So focus on your T0s, your T1s, and you work your way down to T4s. So there's a, there's a, uh, there's a method to the madness. We know it's a huge thing, but we've established it with priorities and groupings that make it a lot more easy to manage. When I was a customer, we had um, not, not the exact same thing. Um, but we had a, a classification system, right, to address priorities of applications, right? The unfortunate part was that it was primarily implemented on paper. And, you know, so Eduardo sets and I'm kind of looking at you guys and I'm thinking, you know, all of that's great, right? We can put thing on, put on paper all day long that DNS is a T0, but if there's not something there that provides those services, that enforces that particular classification at the infrastructure level, Right. It doesn't mean a whole lot. So can you elaborate? Can you describe any of the infrastructure that we're using for that? No, you're right about that. So it's, um, as I said, it's complicated, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't work well because it's not well-defined at the different levels. But but, uh, but I think the, the, um, the key here is that at least uh, from a technology point of view, we define certain things at each tier that, uh, that are repeatable and... and, and um, and the upon, upon which we can rely on, rely on. And what I mean by that is, like, let's take the storage for example. Uh, data protection or or, or or the whole data protection scheme is not just about storage, but if I can rely upon the fact that by default, if I have an application that sits in this particular cluster, this particular fire, they're going to get this default snapshot schedule. They're going to get this default uh, uh, replication schedule based on the, the the properties of the application and the the geographical location of where it sits. Then at the very least, I can I can tell you from the storage point of view, you have the data replication, you have that uh, resiliency. Now that alone doesn't give you everything, right? Uh, if you do need uh, to restore service somewhere else, well, you're gonna need servers and you're gonna need the paperwork that you talk about. We actually need a plan, and that's where like Ken and his uh, um, and his effort comes in. Uh, so we sort of, from a storage point of view, you we play a we're a cog in the system, a medium to large size cog, but not the only thing, right? We have to have these other services uh, or these other teams involved. And this is where the complexity and the difficulty comes in. But for the most part, when it comes to storage technology, uh, we are relying, uh, and, and you know, I'm talking about uh, ONTAP properties right now, right? Like uh, snap mirrors, snap balls, snapshots. Uh, and then and then I, I mentioned AutoWall as well, which we're now using for uh, uh, long-term archiving. So those things we define very well, and we 
try to make it as simple as possible from an administration point of view. And what I mean by that is that we try to narrow it down as I can was talking May four, May five, play variations of the whole thing. Because if we start making one-offs, like, okay, that volume is going to get a special schedule. That volume, it's, it becomes unmanageable. So, so we have to define three or four, you know, four or five different default ways to protect the data. And I can assure you that that data is protected. Now, the other parts of the, of the puzzle is where the, you know, the other teams are engaged through, through this process. And you know, they have to have their ducks in a row as well for it to work. You know, it, it wouldn't be the first time that you know, it has happened you know, in, in our previous lives where we back up all the data to a site that has no compute. And, you know, whereas if you really need DR, there's no DR. It's just data backups. So, uh, yeah, but as long as you have the data, you don't go out of business. If you lose the data, you're out of business. True, 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 true. It, it is also a matter of time, right? If you do lose a, a data center and that's your only place and you have the data somewhere else, well, great, you didn't go out of business right then and there. But if it's going to take you a month to come back together, depending on what your business is, maybe you are out of business. So it kind of depends. It's dependent on what the, on what the, how the service is structured and what's your, your tolerance for downtime. But as I said, from a storage point of view, I agree with you. We, we are making sure that the data is available based on the criticality. Um, but, uh, but again, it's, it's only part of the, part of the solution. Yeah, so, so Evan, I, I don't know if this is a question for you or maybe Ken, right? Do we, do we allow those services to self-select their tier do we, or, or is it something, is there a, a, a process for determining which one of those they actually belong to? Yeah, Ken can definitely speak to the process because self-selecting often isn't a good idea. And Ken has lots of, I'm sure, anecdotal evidence why it's not. Um, and, and then maybe after he talks, then we can talk about, well, then how do you translate the uh, enterprise criticality level to actual things like RPO? Uh, but maybe Ken uh, can answer the question first. Well, it's probably reiterative. I mean, the whole idea is that uh, we came up with a matrix. And the matrix, it's, um, I think of it as the sort of the Rosetta Stone. Because on one side, it's the business view of the world and their business requirements. And the other side, it is the IT service levels. So it's one document that just basically matches the tier with everything that everybody needs to do. But again, business would probably only read page one and IT would go directly to page two. And there is no selection. Right? In fact, when somebody goes through the process to determine their criticality, yes, any pro good process has exceptions. But you know what? That exception has to go to the executive level and not a department's executive because that's the fox guarding the hen house, right? That exception has to go to our risk management organization because they're looking at it from not how it's going to impact your department or your group, but how is it impacting NetApp. And by the fact you want to change it, trust me, no one's ever asked to go lower, right? So if you're asking for something different, you're asking for more money, right? And we're going to be as tight as we can be on money, so an exception has got to be some real reason. Now, again, I've I've created thresholds. You know, could they be slightly off? Are there nuances? Maybe. But since we've implemented, there's never been an exception, right? So, again, uh, that, that's the piece is that establishes the requirement. No one can change that requirement. And that's what's given to IT. So then IT is required to come up with the architecture that is in support of that requirement. If they're not, then we go back and forth in the negotiations. Why can't you support it? It could be the fact that there were some fundamental technology issues that we cannot get around, but we're NetApp, so we should. But uh, if there are reasons we can't, 
then we're kind of feedbacking it to the process to say, let's relook at the standard objectives. They're not achievable at our current levels. We're going to lower it. So the whole it, there is a negotiation back and forth, but once it's established, IT is responsible for the standard architectures. Gotcha. So within the service design concept, Evan, right? How does how does that apply? How how does the rubber meet the road, so to speak? So <clears throat> Ken talked about the idea of a, a, a tiers of enterprise criticality, and and we don't mean disc tiers, by the way. We mean tiers of of classification of enterprise um, capabilities. And so T0, by definition, is a continuous service, right? RPO is zero. There can be no data loss. So architectures need to be synchronous or, or such that they're stateless. Um, T1, then, is the next step down. And uh, I think we set that RPO to about four hours. That's half a business shift. You know, there's three shifts uh, uh, Every 24 hours, half a business shift would be the maximum tolerance uh, for a T1 data loss. Um, and then you go down the scale from there. Be below T1, there's, there's T2, 3, and 4. That's where we define a 24-hour RPO um, because there can be a maximum of one day's worth of loss um, for the business to keep functioning. And again, this is all driven by reputation. Um, there's a, in fact, there's a whole set of, of survey questions that uh, Ken asks around this, and we're going to be doing a very similar thing with our customers where a survey allows them to look at their applications or groups of applications and score them on whether it's a catastrophic impact from two or more major impacts. That would be a, a T0 or a major impact, and it should be a T1 and so forth. So... We're developing a essentially a survey to make it easy for customers to classify things and then translate that with them directly into data protection service levels by RPO. And, of course, that drives the whole architecture uh, behind it. So it's, that's really interesting. And one thing that occurs to me is that at no point have we discussed right, passing on cost to the customer, right? You know, a lot of times we associate things like, you know, when we've talked about the service level design workshop before, it's, you know, you have these multiple tiers, multiple performance levels, you know, extreme, high performance, you know, uh, archive level storage. And each of those has a cost associated with it. But from a, you know, a business criticality level, right, when we're talking about an RPO or an RTO setting, that's not necessarily something that that service owner should be driving. And therefore, they shouldn't, it's, well, my budget says that I can only afford to have it backed up every seven days. Well, from a business perspective, that could be completely unacceptable. So right. It, yeah, it's, it's an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. But there is a cost component here because the underlying services, right? So data protection is sort of a middle service. It, it's, you know, above storage but below the application. Um, there, there is a cost component because, for example, storage, there's a dollar per gig cost of different service levels of storage uh, or archive storage. And so... When you, you, you sum up essentially the cost of a data protection service by the sum of its, of its component services. So it isn't that we're ignoring cost. Um, it's that data protection by itself doesn't determine cost. We have to look at the services underneath it that really determine the cost of a particular data protection level. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, and, I, and I'll add yeah. to one thing is um, this is part of that feedback loop I was getting at. Is like should a... Continuity. We, we come up with a 
RPO and OPO requirement based on a tier, and we come to IT, and then IT says, this is going to be the cost of implementing it. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, that's not currently the approach we're currently using. Do we want to put just, do we justify the, the increase, right? And that goes back into the feedback loop saying, all right, do we want to set it to the new objective and, and pay this funds, this capital expense, or do we want to just stay the way we are? So there is that feedback between the cost and um, what it's protecting and whether a change is worth it at this time. Yeah, but I love how you've uh, how, how the business is in the loop on that because also all too often that decision is made in a bubble by IT based on what IT is actually capable of, right? There, you, you end up with with middle managers and and IT pros that, that that all mean well. They're just looking at it, going, "Listen, this is what I've got access to. It's this or nothing." But 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 they often fail to do that final step, which is to go back to the business and say, listen, I can't actually meet your your objective given what I have. This is what I need. So you guys decide as a group, are we going to accept this risk or are we going to go spend some money? Exactly. And now you're even getting to the catalyst of why all this is taking place. I mean, I've been involved in IT since the mid 80s. So at that time, IT had unlimited budgets. Up to 2000, IT had so much money that they basically were giving the business more than they ever even wanted or knew existed. But come 2000, it started reverse. All of a sudden, funds started getting lower on IT. And instead of ever, they didn't talk to uh, the business in the first place in the 80s and the 90s because they had the money. They said, why not just do it? Come 2000, 2010, they still weren't talking to the business. But what was happening? There was no funds anymore. And they started to not do things as they used to do, or well, they started to cannibalize. So next thing you know, you end up with this mixed match of um, inconsistent service levels. And no one, again, ever talked to the business. That's why this methodology came about. It's to say, okay, we need IT and the business talking together and coming up with decisions. And that's really what this facilitates more than anything else. I'm kind of curious, how is that process gone inside NetApp? You know, we've said that we're three years into this now. Uh, has this process matured so that it, it, it's just kind of fully streamlined? Is it is it painless or is there still a, a price to be paid from a agility perspective to go through all these hoops? Well, one of the key things that I would like to add is that the, the way this has helped the storage team is to to really understand or have a framework for standardizing what your snapshot schedules are going to be, your application schedules, like Eduardo said. But but most importantly, to understand the patterns of how it, it, it looks across the entire enterprise and then coming to a conclusion or accepting where the storage can only take a recovery requirement but so far then the, 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 they, they will have to now include or incorporate application clustering, server clustering, and other technologies to bring the application to their requirement. But storage is not going to do a two-minute snap mirror upgrade um, update. So that is the key thing that this framework has done for us, is to incorporate all of the stacks, all of the technology stacks, and then, you know, each of us throw our, you know, contributions into the hat and figure out who is going to do what part. But if, if we as a storage team try to own the whole thing, we end up doing crazy things like that. Yeah, I imagine if we went back and, and, and 
went, did the old way of presenting them with the menu and saying, which one would you pick? Uh, we'd have nobody pick the option that's that, or everyone would pick the option that's between zero RPO and four hours, right? Uh, the, I think it's interesting that we don't have a recovery point in that window. Well, we're, we're, you're specifically bringing up RPO, and uh, I mean, I should caveat that, you know, some of our numbers are considered confidential, so I, I won't get too much into the details of our decisions on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable on downtimes. But um, we also look at probability of events. Let's face it, when was, you know, knock on wind, when was the last time we had a disaster, right? I mean, we're talking about risk is about um, balancing the, the cost of the event with the probability of the event, right? And we have more incidents and outages within production. There, there's something that happens in pretty much every IT organization. So we make sure that we lose the minimum amount of time and the minimum amount of data within the production environment. Again, that's why OPO and OTO came along, is to make sure we standardize what that loss is. Because, again, we, we're going to see it happen more often. From an RTO and RPO point of view for, for NetApp, that's truly just for a, a catastrophe. Right? We're not talking about an application failing over or anything like that. We're talking about a meteor hitting, you know, hitting our data center. So everything's being recovered. So that's why they're slightly larger than other companies. And I can tell you that we also compare it against ourselves against our industry. We're not that. We're pretty much in line. But, again, our thing is disaster is truly a data center-level disaster, not an application or IT service. That's why our numbers are, are as they are different between op operational resiliency and disaster recovery. Now, I know there was another question out there. Actually, the previous question was, you know, also, where are we on the maturity? Because I, you know, blurted out that I've been frustrated with this for three years. It was mainly because um, it started out very ad hoc. I had a they had, we had specific problems. You know, with this type of application or this service or this, we were very ad hoc. Now we're moving towards operationalizing it, right? Doing it across the board for everybody. You know, no matter what department you're in, what, no matter what architecture, that's where we're moving towards now in year three. That's what I'm saying. We're starting to really get our our, um, our traction. But it also requires, you know, as uh, as the storage team did, the storage teams coming together and establishing standard architectures not still being in their customized mode. So the storage team was the first one to really do this, to say, all right, let's adopt the tier approach and make a standard offering. Now, our, uh, architecture, uh, uh, enterprise architectures are looking at the same thing from a compute point of view. Let's come up with standard builds that also support the availability, the operational time, and the recovery time objectives for these tiers. So with those two groups really getting into it and establishing their standards, that'll make this very easy. You know, I think it's an interesting comment that, you know, we are standardizing all of these different service offerings, right? And, you know, the the combination of automation, of standardization, right, has improved our posture in many of these different ways, right? We are delivering better service levels to the different applications, to the different services that are out there. We're providing more consistent, predictable, right, recoverability policies. And in a lot of cases, I would suspect like most enterprises, right, there's things that are now underneath that umbrella that previously weren't, right? And at the same time, I don't know if you guys are getting any more manpower or not, but right, it's, it's, you're doing more with less, right? By, using those those underlying tool sets, right, standardization and automation particularly, right, to provide 
better services without having to necessarily increase you know, you, I, I don't think either you guys is working 12 or 16 hours a day, right, to make up for it. So um, it really, really interesting stuff. I think this is one of the big impacts of cloud across the entire industry. And that's this notion of very limited variability because cloud services, you know, you can't get anything you want. There's always a menu of, you know, three to five options. And I think that is infecting all of enterprise IT as well, because we're realizing that we can no longer be a, a, a custom restaurant. You can't order anything you want. We've got to build a menu. We've got to create standardization, drive down cost, and speed up velocity. Velocity is really what every business is looking for, and that only happens with limited choice and, uh, and scalability. Yeah, which honestly was the root of, of my original question about you know asking what what the impact here was because I actually would guess that you know once this is fully productized and everything else we would see our true velocity if you measure velocity in you know terms of getting the service stood up getting it uh, deployed and then also carried all the way through to yes you've got it protected you've got all the compliance things in in place and and you know that 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 it's it's ready for you to run the business on you know often that latter part is kept until the very, very end when the thing's already been in production for six months and someone realizes that they have, they've never backed it up, right? Um, encompassing it all up front in, in, in just is part of the process, right? We're gonna bring this service uh, to the business. We're adding a capability. Part of that is deciding what storage tiers we need to run it on. There's a cost associated with that. There's a process that we go through for selecting that. There's also another process that we go through for assessing how much risk is acceptable for this service and then categorizing the data protection requirements. Doing that all upfront as one unit you know, if we can, which it sounds like NetApp is actually in a position to do so, not only does that ensure that we don't miss those steps, but as Sully mentioned, it also removes the cost for doing all of those steps because you get to benefit from scale. Bingo. Exactly right. And this has major implications for how NetApp's going to respond to our market. Because if our customers are seeing these changes and these needs, then the NetApp is going to respond. Uh, t with with products, I think that are going to be uh, far more standardized and and with a lot less choice. No longer, I think, can can any of us afford to build custom IT. You know, and I'll also mention that um, this goes well beyond. This is a customer provider methodology, so it's really meant for hybrid IT. Because if I if I have a capability that's being supported partially by NetApp IT and partially by a SaaS provider. Because I did it at the business side, that SaaS provider is going to be held for the exact same requirements. Now, the good thing about that, again, you know, it, it, it ends up making uh, service levels and uh, um, MSAs very simple to do because they already know what they need to do. They don't have to customize it. But second, it also drops out providers. You know, it starts to streamline which ones can actually support these sort of things and which ones can't. So it's not like going at the cheapest SaaS provider out there. You know, because it's from the business point of view, right? It's like, all right, which provider, business provider, can support me appropriately? Evan, Evan, do you and your team have this? Uh, have you been able to, to to pay this work from Ken and wrap it up in a process? Is this in your catalog now? Yes, it is. So we have a data protection service design workshop. The input into it is a data criticality survey that the customer 
can provide to us that you know maybe they look at 10 20 30 applications and classify them ahead of time so that we have you know a good working set to to build on and then we take the customer through the definition of data protection service levels by RPO the topology underneath and uh, and ultimately then uh, what needs to be in that architecture and the financial model underneath that which is you know predicates they, they really need to do a service design workshop for storage first so we know the cost of the underlying storage platforms and uh, then we can build data protection on top of that so uh, the answer is yes we're uh, we're starting to meet with customers and deliver this kind of a workshop now and of course object service design as well but I also imagine it feeds into this as well since you know that object store is is our long-term archive for some of this data and there's the data fabric message again. <laughs> so yes, uh, if I need you know, uh, an archive, for example, for data that I want to move out of my primary storage, um, then beautiful. There's the object storage case, uh, and, and that's where we talk about AltaVault and storage grid and so forth. Um, let's go around the room and kind of go over how we can get in touch with everybody in terms of uh, contacting you for more information about storage service design or more information about data protection in general. Starting with you, Stetson, how do we get in touch with you? At Stetson Webster on Twitter or Stetson.Webster at NetApp.com. All right, Eduardo Rivera, how do we get in touch with you? At uh, Mr. Ed Rivera on Twitter or Eduardo.Rivera at NetApp.com. And right. may I add, I think... I think we all need DJ names now because uh, me and Stetson and you know, <laughs> Evan being here you know, five times now. I nominate Taco for you. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. DJ Taco. DJ Taco. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of a dinner I was at recently where we all made up our stripper names. That Quick, sounds like quite a, a lot of quiet there. <laughs> a little bit of silence there. I, I, I Awkward that. silence. <laughs> Segwaying into that, Evan Miller, how do we get in touch with you and what was your stripper name? <laughs> at Evan C. Miller and Evan.Miller at NetApp.com. And my stripper name would be Bubbles. That's a pretty good one. Ken Sacco, how do we get in touch with you? Best way is just Ken.Sacco at NetApp.com. No stripper name? No stripper name. That's, that's probably for the best. I'm more of the manager. <laughs> All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or on SoundCloud or on techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Ken Sacco, NetApp IT, and Evan Miller for joining us this week. And remember to send your questions to the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast at podcast.netapp.com. As always, thanks for listening. How's everybody doing? You holding in there? If we're awesome. at the end of the day here, it's like five o'clock East Coast time. Now. I thought stripper names were based off of like your first tent and your home, the street oh, of your yeah. first house or something like oh, that. Oh, that's one way to do it. Yeah. Well, I think it's because Evan's uh, pet's name was Bubbles and he didn't have a home. He's homeless. So it's just Bubbles. Oh.